This podcast is brought to you by HelloFresh. Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, former ambassador to Turkey and Finland, and most important, host of another Bulwark podcast, an excellent podcast, Shield of the Republic. Well, welcome one and all. Well, the entire commentariat was a buzz for the last 24 hours regarding the Colorado Supreme Court ruling that Trump is indeed ineligible to be on the Colorado ballot because he is an insurrectionist. It was a 4-3 decision by the Colorado Supreme Court, all of whose members were appointed by Democratic governors. So they dealt with a number of important issues and laid out their reasoning very clearly including defining the term insurrection. And I'm just going to quote this quick few sentences because I think it was very well stated. The court wrote, For purposes of deciding this case, we need not adopt a single all-encompassing definition of the word insurrection. Rather, it suffices for us to conclude that any definition of insurrection for purposes of Section 3 would encompass a concerted and public use of force or threat of force by a group of people to hinder or prevent the U.S. government from taking the actions necessary to accomplish a peaceful transfer of power in this country. Okay. So there are many aspects of this decision to discuss. I think we have some disagreement in our own panel. And since we're called Beg to Differ, we're going to do that. Damon, why don't you tell us what you don't like about this decision? Okay. Uh, I feel a little bit like watching our politics and anticipating the next 10 or 11 months, like I'm watching a deadly car crash unfolding in slow motion. Now, Trump winning would be incredibly dangerous, but I also think trying to prevent him from competing could be equally bad. So look, in my view, America is deep in the throes of what you might call a legitimacy crisis. We have one of our two parties, the GOP, increasingly wedded to the populist line that our institutions are corrupt, using high-minded appeals to principle to conceal efforts to grab and hold power in defiance of democratic public opinion. Now, I think this is largely wrong, a kind of fever dream, paranoid, conspiratorial, and nonsense. And I blame a long string of figures on the right including Rush Limbaugh, Roger Ailes, Newt Gingrich, Sarah Palin, and many others on down to, at the very pinnacle, Donald Trump for pushing this line and getting people to believe it. Uh, But whatever its origins, the resulting crisis is real. That's where this 14th Amendment case comes in, in my view. The relevant section three of the 14th Amendment was written in reference to members of the Confederacy who literally seceded from the Union, took up arms against it, fought a war for four long, bloody years, and then surrendered on the battlefield in defeat. And we're being asked to apply this to Trump for his role in the violence of January 6th. Now, as much as I despise Trump for what he did that day, the days leading up to that day, and I have myself used the term insurrection to describe it. I don't think that four out of seven judges on the Colorado Supreme Court stand in analogous relation to Trump as the union did to the defeated Confederacy. Tens of millions of Americans don't think Trump did anything wrong that day, let alone that it constituted an insurrection against the United States. And moreover, neither apparently does Jack Smith, who I note 
did not indict Trump under the federal statute for insurrection. In fact, Smith didn't even charge Trump with any crime directly linking him to violence on January 6th. And of course, Trump hasn't yet been convicted of a single crime on any charge. So by what definition is he guilty of insurrection as stated in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? And I, of course, say that knowing, Mona, what you said and Quoting the ruling, uh, I guess I just disagree with the, the four judges there. Final point I'll make. Uh, what this looks like, I think, is corroborating evidence for the right's populist line about the country and its institutions. Unlike the delusions about a stolen election, this one is actually happening. The Colorado Supreme Court is actually trying to prevent the man currently polling at 63% in the primary polls from appearing on ballots. And they're even trying to prevent voters from writing him in on the basis of what they themselves, the people who maybe most despise Trump, think should be his fate. They're saying, in effect, sorry, you're not going to be allowed to vote for him. We say so, and you have to trust us and defer to us. We interpret the rules, and we know better than you do. And I don't think that is going to fly in a country in the throes of the legitimacy crisis, as I defined it. So there you go. There's my case. <laughs> okay. Linda Chavez, what do you say? Well, I beg to differ. And <laughs> I don't necessarily beg to differ on the politics. Um I think that Donald Trump has managed to turn every one of his charges in 91 felonies charged against him into fundraising bonanza and making him a victim that for some reason attracts all sorts of other people who also think they're victims. So I don't disagree at all with Damon on the politics. But I will say that I try to maintain some consistency in my views about the law and the Constitution and the role of the courts. And I am, as a conservative, a textualist. I read the words, I try to interpret what they say, and then I apply them to a situation. And I think if you read the 14th Amendment and you read its words, I think that Donald Trump is, in fact, disqualified from being president. Now, Damon makes the point that he's never been found guilty in a court of law. He hasn't been charged with a sedition or insurrection. And that, you know, I assume what he's saying is that that would be necessary. Well, the Colorado court actually did a very thorough job, I thought, of dealing with the issue of whether or not Donald Trump was uh, involved in an insurrection. And they relied very heavily on the testimony and the report of the January 6th committee, uh, a report that, if I'm not mistaken, was in fact adopted exactly a year ago. And so the committee, after hearing umpteen witnesses um, accumulating, you know, thousands and thousands of, of pages of evidence did in fact say that Donald Trump was involved in insurrection, uh, not only in summoning the crowd uh, to the ellipse and then essentially sending them to the hill to fight like hell, in his own words, but also in terms of his actions while the violence was going on. So I think there was an insurrection and that Donald Trump was part of that insurrection. And he has certainly given aid and comfort to those, some of whom have in fact been found guilty of uh, a rebellion and, and, and an insurrection. Uh, some of the defendants who've been charged have in fact been found guilty. And Donald Trump has made it very clear that if he's elected president, he is going to actually pardon those people, people who were convicted by a jury of their peers. Now, you know, I don't always like the results of court decisions. You know, we, we've talked a lot here about the Dobbs decision. I don't like the Dobbs decision. But as somebody who is a textualist, I don't think the Dobbs decision was wrong. I thought the Roe v. Wade original decision uh, was not uh, a correct legal decision. So I may or may not like what the outcome of uh, this 
decision by this the Supreme Court in Colorado is. And I think that the question is, how is the U.S. Supreme Court going to react to this? And if the members of that court, the conservatives on that court, were consistent in their judicial philosophy of reading the text of the law and applying it, I think they will affirm at least some of them. And, you know, it would be unfortunate if it came down just to a a five to four decision affirming it. But, you know, we don't always like the decisions, but, but liking the law is very different than being consistent in your judicial philosophy and sticking to the words that are written within the Constitution. So, Eric, regarding the uh, question of Trump not having been charged with insurrection, not having been convicted of insurrection, other critics point out that none of the thousands of former Confederate officers who were disqualified by this part of the 14th Amendment were tried either for insurrection. It was just assumed that if you had taken up arms against the country that you were at one time an insurrectionist. So they didn't get tried either. And then there are objections that this is undemocratic, but of course, lots of aspects of the Constitution. I'm, I'm just being devil's advocate here. I haven't revealed my own views on this yet, but it is observed that many aspects of the Constitution are not democratic either. I mean, we don't have a pure democracy, thank God. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of the press. Well, that's that's anti-democratic. Suppose a majority of the American people want such a law. Sorry, can't have it. So what's your reaction to all this? I think you said you have mixed feelings. Yeah, I mean, so first, Mona, you know, I'm not a lawyer and I don't play one on TV or podcasts. <laughs> uh, but as Woody Allen said in one of his early films, you know, I have really mixed feelings about this. Let me start actually with where I kind of agree with Damon. Damon, in the article he wrote for CNN, said that we would have been spared all this if the United States Senate had done its job back in February of uh, 21 and convicted uh, Trump in the second impeachment and therefore debarred him from ever holding federal office again. And I agree with that. But of course, the argument that was made at the time was this was something that the courts would have to to deal with. And so now we're left with the courts uh, dealing uh, with it. I guess I find myself persuaded by uh, uh, Judge Michael Ludig, who said after the Colorado Supreme Court decision came out that he found the logic unassailable. President Biden said, I think what most Americans who are not part of the MAGA cult would agree with, which is that it's self-evident that Trump was involved in trying to block the peaceful transfer of power and foment an insurrection to violently stop the counting of votes on January 6th. If you need new evidence beyond what the January 6th committee turned up, there's an IG report from the Department of the Interior that was released this week that shows that some of the organizers uh, in contact with the White House said, POTUS knows all about this and he's going to pretend that he's spontaneously calling for us to march up to to the Capitol. So, I mean, I think the evidence here is pretty overwhelming. Eric, can I, can I interrupt for just a quick point also? Sure. Um, because it's important to remember that not only did he do all those things, but that he attempted to use the violence as a form of intimidation. While the violence was going on, he was still putting in calls to senators Correct. to lobby them to vote a certain way. So right. that's clear evidence in my judgment of insurrection. I agree. And while I, I take Damon's points very seriously, I think he makes extremely good points about the prudential issues of what this means for our contemporary politics. But but I think there's a flip side to that, which is if we allow the sort of populist nationalist narrative of victimization and weaponization of the rule of law against them, to go unchallenged, doesn't that do damage to our democracy as well? You know, we we are a nation of of laws, not of men or women. And I really think that the law has to apply here. And I guess my final point is, you know, having been the U.S. ambassador to Turkey and watched Turkey walk down the path towards authoritarianism, I think we're not just facing what Damon calls a, a legitimacy crisis, I think we're facing potentially an existential crisis of democracy. 
Uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela tried to organize a coup, was then not debarred from running for president, uh, which he was elected democratically president of Venezuela. We're still dealing with the consequences in the hemisphere of that today. I know that Leo Strauss famously said the argument ad Hitlerum is always, almost always a bad argument, but Hitler, you know, um, tried to orchestrate a coup in 1923, was briefly jailed, was then allowed to, you know, run for office again, had two elections in which he uh, won in 1933, and then Germany never had another election until the late 40s under our occupation. You know, to me, it's clear what Trump and his associates are saying they intend to do uh, if elected. And I, I think it would spell potentially the end of our democracy. And democracy has to be able to defend itself against people who would use elections to have one man, one vote, one time. All excellent points. Bill Galston, I think Damon's points are well taken. But I think Damon leaves out the fact that, yes, the Trump MAGA forces and and maybe some MAGA-adjacent Republicans will be drawn into this victim narrative and energized by it. Um, That's probably already happening. There's evidence that Nikki Haley has seen drop off in enthusiasm since this happened when she was enjoying a little mini surge. So yeah, that is possible. First of all, isn't it a surrender to those forces to say we can't upset them because they're anti-democratic and they're crazy and they're paranoid, so we can't do anything to upset them, and then you lose the game by surrendering to them. You lose the democracy. But on the other hand, (laughs) you could say, look, the Supreme Court is almost certain to shoot this down. They are not going to want to spend their precious capital, their political capital, on denying to the voters an opportunity to choose who they prefer on the ballot. They need to keep their powder dry to do rulings like finding that Trump is not immune from prosecution, which is also going to be before them very shortly. And so when the Supreme Court rules, unless it does it simultaneously, but when the Supreme Court rules that the Colorado court was wrong, won't that strengthen Trump? Won't he say, aha, you see, they came after me again, and once more, I'm victorious? Well, I had the privilege of sitting in on an expert panel on on all of this at Brookings just yesterday, and I learned a great deal from it. And uh, the speakers had, you know, views at least as diverse as on this podcast, but there was one point of agreement, and that is the chances that the Supreme Court will uphold the ruling of the Colorado Supreme Court are somewhere between slim and none. And I find those arguments about the propensity and likely actions of the U.S. Supreme Court quite compelling. But let me take the discussion in a different direction. You know, I strongly believe in the rule of law, and I absolutely agree with the proposition that the U.S. Constitution is uh, designed in part to take certain decisions out of the hands of the majority. That was the point that one of the points that Michael Ludwig stressed in his statements after the Colorado case. I believe in the rule of law, but the question is, what is the law? And I think that that's a very complicated question for the following reason. And, you know, the debate has to do with the meaning, not just in theory, but in operation of the third section of the 14th Amendment. It's less often noted that Not only is there a section four, but also a section five. And section five reads, the Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. And what that means is that the the Congress has the power to define not only the meaning of key terms, but also the procedures by which this entire amendment to the Constitution can be enforced. A lot of the discussion has proceeded as though Congress did not do anything of the sort. 
That is, as though Congress did not pass enabling legislation. But in fact, it did. A lot of commentators have pointed out that that Salmon P. Chase in 1869, Chase at that point being uh, the uh, he was the chief justice. He was, but he was, justice. but he was serving as a circuit court judge at the time, not as Correct. chief justice. Correct. However, we can have a long discussion as to why subsequent courts chose to rely on that case. Be that as it may, not only did Chase say that the article in question is not self-executing. But so did a number of other people, including Thaddeus Stevens, who was the man who introduced the 14th Amendment on the floor of the House of Representatives. And so did Lyman Trumbull, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, during that discussion. And guess what? After Chase said in 1869 that enforcement legislation was necessary, Congress passed enforcement legislation the very next year in 1870. And it turns out that that enforcement legislation is still on the books. You know, I can even, if anybody is interested, give you the precise citation in the U.S. Code. So, in fact, as a matter of law, Congress has spoken on the question of how this section of, of the 14th Amendment shall be put into operation. And to make a long story short, that law does not permit the state of Colorado to do what it has done. And therefore, very reluctantly, I conclude in a classic argument against interests, as the lawyers would say, I simply can't accept the holding of the, of the Colorado Supreme Court. Okay, Bill. Well, I beg to differ as a matter of law. We can get to the prudence, maybe second. But as a matter of law, look, the fact that Congress passed legislation doesn't negate the actual wording of the amendment. So the wording of the 14th Amendment is the Constitution. That is the supreme law of the land. There is no sense, for example, that implementing legislation is necessary to validate the other parts of the 14th Amendment. For example, Section 1, where it says all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No, no action by Congress is necessary to ratify that section or the second one, representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, etc. So the implementing legislation argument, I don't think negates the wording of the 14th Amendment. But for this reason and for others, I believe that the Colorado Supreme Court got the law right. But in a matter like this, where the stability of our democracy is at stake, you cannot make decisions based purely on what is the correct legal outcome. You also have to take account of the political consequences. I think that's just reality. And so I think if the Supreme Court, whose authority and whose legitimacy is so crucial for the other um, matters that are going to be coming before it concerning Trump's trials in the coming months, I think it would be a mistake prudentially for the court to weigh in, to Bigfoot this now and say that he is barred from being on the ballot because we need their authority for other things. And so even though I think the Colorado court was correct, I expect and will not mind so much when the Supreme Court, I think, overturns this decision. Anybody want to weigh in? Yeah, me. Okay. Uh, let us suppose, arguendo, as the lawyers would say, that enabling resolution, you know, which is explicitly authorized under Section 5, is not necessary. I'm not sure that's true in the case of Article 3, of Section 3, but uh, let's suppose that that's the case. The circumstances change when Congress affirmatively speaks, when it chooses to exercise its power to pass enabling legislation. Congress has done so in this case. Does that mean nothing? 
Well, you know, Congress passes lots of laws that are later ruled to be unconstitutional. So the fact that Congress spoke up is neither here nor there, in my judgment. Could I weigh in? And, yeah, Because I think uh, n- nobody has mentioned the fact that in Section 3 itself, uh, and this is part of what I would argue validates the argument that uh, it is self-executing, in Section 3, it allows Congress, by a vote of two-thirds, to remove such disability from an right. individual. If this issue is still alive next week, uh, I am relying heavily on, on the arguments of one of the most respected constitutional lawyers and constitutional historians, namely Mike McConnell. And I think it would be interesting to hear him defend more than I can the case that he made at the Federalist Society, which I found very compelling. Yeah, it's, it is interesting that the lively debate on this matter has cut across ideological barriers. So you've had the two scholars who wrote the law review article that got this ball rolling were both conservative Federalist Society members who argued that the 14th Amendment bars Trump. So, and of course, Luddig and others have have weighed in. And then you have McConnell on the other side and many others. So it's been an interesting debate that is not partisan and uh, therefore more interesting for that. All right. We'll leave that there. I'm sure there'll be more. We have also seen this week that Congress has not been able to come to a uh, deal on aid to Ukraine, Israel, and uh, money for the border. We talked last week about the negotiations. They are still ongoing and are set to resume after the holiday break. But I thought since we have Eric Edelman here, who is an expert on these matters, that it would be good to look at events on the ground a little bit because you've seen both the Russian and Ukrainian militaries talking about big call-ups of troops. The Ukrainians are saying they need 500,000 and the Russians as I understand it, are, you know, sort of vacuuming up convicts from their prisons and sending them to the front lines. So, Eric, tell us a little bit about where we stand in terms of how the battle is going. It's almost winter. Presumably things are going to be frozen in more ways than one, at least for a little while. Well, I think the situation on the ground is that both sides are having extraordinary difficulty mounting offensive operations the Russians, in part because they have taken unbelievable, enormous casualties. You know, something on the order of 315,000, according to recently declassified uh, U.S. assessments, which are not that far off from the numbers that the Ukrainians have been claiming for some time. Is that dead? Uh, it's dead and wounded. Um, mm. Given the state of Russian battlefield medicine, I think there are a lot of wounded who end up uh, as killed uh, in action. Mm-hmm. It, just in the last two months, uh, in the area around Avdika, the Russians have lost something like 13,000 killed, which is uh, roughly what they lost in 10 years in Afghanistan. So these are quite catastrophic losses. And as, as you say, Mona, I mean, they've, they're running out of cannibals and wife stabbers from the, um, <laughs> from the prisons uh, to fill the ranks. Uh, They've been press-ganging Central Asian migrants who are working in Russia, which faces labor shortages that are being intensified, by the way, by Putin's move to a a full wartime economy with three three shifts a day in the defense industry, which is also overheating the Russian economy and creating enormous inflationary pressures. So Russia's facing some challenges, and politically it's very difficult for Putin to mobilize additional fighters from European Russia, in particular major cities like St. Petersburg and Moscow that are very politically salient. And of course, he's in campaign mode now because he's running for re-election uh, in, in March. Of course, he'll win that election, but, uh, but he is very sensitive to, to public opinion uh, in, in that interim period. Uh, the Ukrainians, of course, have suffered enormous losses as well. And because they're at a, a demographic disadvantage vis-a-vis uh, Russia, they are going to have to get more troops mobilized and and put into the field. There has not been a general mobilization in Ukraine heretofore. I I think the Ukrainians as well, having largely failed to achieve most of the objectives of of the counteroffensive this summer and fall, 
are going to have to sort of dig in to defend what they have recovered from Russia in the two years of fighting. And that is going to require them to do some of the kind of defensive fortifications that the Russians did over the uh, nine-month period, roughly between last fall and this summer, that enabled them to thwart the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And there are a number of places, uh, as President Zelensky has said, where Ukraine has, has work to do on that score. Now, of course, a lot of this changes if the United States uh, does not approve, if the U.S. Congress doesn't approve the supplemental legislation and provide for additional aid to Ukraine uh, because the situation of the battlefield could change dramatically uh, if that were to occur. Already, there are reports anecdotally of Ukrainians' units facing you know, shell hunger. They don't have enough ammunition. They're rationing ammunition. They were at a point this summer where they were actually uh, firing more rounds of artillery, particularly 155 rounds of artillery, than the Russians were on given days. But that's now shifted back to a Russian advantage as the Russians are not only producing their own stocks from the uh, war footing they've put defense industry on, roughly 40% of the Russian budget now going to defense, but also more than a million shells that they've received from the North Koreans. So it's a very parlous, I think, situation for Ukraine. And we can talk about, you know, if, if you would like the potential consequences of this. I would just say Bill and I have had an ongoing colloquy in another venue about uh, the likelihood, I don't want to speak for him, but I think he and I are both pretty bearish about the prospects of this passing uh, the Congress. Uh, I think there's a lot of blame to go around for that. Certainly, the House Republicans bear a, a lot of onus. Republican voters who have turned decisively against Ukraine over the last nine months in polling, uh, who are the leading indicator, I think. I think Republicans in Congress are the lagging indicator. And I think they're going to certainly after January 15th in Iowa and then the 23rd in New Hampshire, when it becomes apparent, as I fear, that Trump will be the putative nominee, I think you're going to see he's been silent to this point. But I think uh, it will be very hard to pass something after that if it doesn't get passed before that. And I think time is, is running out. Okay, I do want to get to the consequences, but but first, I, I I must ask you to just explain to people because we hear over and over again, especially from Republicans, we don't want to send all this money to Ukraine. You know, we have problems here at home, but isn't it the case that a lot of this money, if it's authorized, is going to be spent in the United States? It's going to be military contractors in the U.S. who are going to get these contracts, right? About 90% of it, um, you know, uh, <laughs> basically there are two sources of assistance to the Ukrainians. One is presidential drawdown authority, which allows the Department of Defense under presidential authority to put together packages of, of equipment from U.S. stocks, which then have to be replenished with money from the Congress. The other is the Ukrainian Security Assistance uh, Initiative, which allows the U.S. to put different kinds of systems on contract with American contractors, ultimately to be delivered to the Ukrainians 12 or 18 months from now. Some of that will continue to flow because contracts have been let over the last year. So it won't be completely off a cliff uh, if the Congress doesn't pass a supplemental because some of these contracts will start producing uh, additional weapons to be supplied to the Ukrainians, but it still will be a, a pretty sharp fall off. But yes, I mean, uh, most of this money be spent in the United States. Uh, uh, Mark Thiessen and colleagues at AEI did an excellent paper on this that even broke it down by district. A lot of congressional districts are benefiting from this, including some, you know, like the state of Ohio, uh, where a lot of this is being produced, despite the fact that J.D. Vance, the, the junior senator from Ohio, doesn't care what happens to the Ukrainians and is opposed to any more assistance. Right. Okay. And so now let's broaden out the lens and look at your evaluation of what does the world look like if the U.S. abandons its Ukrainian ally? Well, I think it's a pretty grim world, honestly. I don't want to be hyperbolic about it. But um, first of all, the United States' reputation as a reliable ally will take a big hit. And that will have consequences both for our multilateral alliance in Europe, NATO, but also our bilateral alliances uh, in the Indo-Pacific uh, with the Republic of Korea, with Japan, and with the Philippines, but also with the countries in the Middle East that we have 
special relationships with, like Israel, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Egypt. And you'd already see some of the consequences of that in hedging behavior in the Middle East. I think it will leave the Russian military in a position to recoup some of the losses, rebuild itself, replenish itself, and posture itself in a, a way that is much more threatening, uh, not just to Ukraine, but to NATO allies in the Baltic and now in Northern Europe, and certainly Poland. I think it will just in general diminish uh, America's already tattered uh, ability to deter. I mean, we see that playing out in the Red Sea um, and the constant attacks by the Houthis and Iranian-sponsored militias more broadly in the region. So I think it will damage uh, deterrence. And in just general, I think it will, um, you know, on the sort of international version of broken window theory, uh, lead to greater, greater global disorder uh, and uh, less ability for the United States to maintain what we kind of grandiloquently call the liberal rules-based international order, which essentially is the system of alliances we've developed, as well as the rules and norms of free trade and free flow of goods and finance around the world. <laughs> and of course, as I was discussing with Ann Applebaum earlier this week in, on a different podcast, but uh, when the U.S. is seen as unreliable, you know, other powers around the world are going to make their best deal with China or Russia or Iran or whoever they perceive to be the big dog. Yes, it will lead to a lot of bandwagoning behavior with powers that are perceived to be, you know, willing to kind of meet their obligations and their their undertakings. And we've seen that in some to some degree in the Middle East ever since the Russians intervened in September of 2015. Okay. If I could just say a brief word. Yep. You know, Eric and I have been waving the warning flag now for six months on the congressional dimension of aid aid to Ukraine. Having said this, I guess I think the chances of getting something done are much more than zero. And I do think that the negotiations on border policy will reach a successful conclusion in the Senate. And certainly before the end of January, the Senate will have actually passed legislation you know, that provides aid to Ukraine, to Israel, and Taiwan in addition to the bipartisan compromise on border security. The tough nut, I think, is going to be the House of Representatives. And in the best of all possible worlds, the Speaker of the House, who really, I believe, based on his statements, which I take seriously, wants aid for Ukraine to pass, does not want to go down in history as the man who presided over the kind of fiasco that Eric has just described. So with such gory detail. And the question is, number one, is he going to be able to keep a majority of House Republicans in line on the Senate package? Or if not, is he prepared to take a matter of, of this consequence to the floor, knowing that a majority of the House of Representatives supports it, even if a majority of his own caucus doesn't? These are questions that only the Speaker of the House can answer. Uh, I don't have any confidence that he'll answer them the right way, but nor do I know with certainty that he won't. Could I just add one little thing? You bet. Um, first of all, I hope that Bill is right. Um, but I don't think Ukraine can wait till the end of January to get help. And I am encouraged that the administration and the leadership of the West is considering using foreign assets that are frozen. Russian assets and using that money to be able to help Ukraine. Uh, the Renewed Democracy Initiative put out a, a paper called Making Putin Pay, and it was written by Lawrence Tribe and a, and a group of other constitutional experts. And what it essentially says is that the president does have authority under the uh, International Emergency Economic Powers Act to be able to take some of the frozen assets that we have of Russia that are in uh, U.S. institutions and to be able to turn that. And European and ones. And European ones as well. And turn those, well, the, yes, the Europeans 
I, I think would need to go along with us on that, but be able to uh, to turn those assets over, uh, and that would and be that's a big 300 help. Billion. 300 billion totally. The U.S. alone has 34 billion. So this would be an infusion of money that they desperately need. I'm not sure they can wait till the end of January if they run out of bullets. Right. Okay. Let's turn now to President Biden's standing, and specifically, there is this disconnect in the United States that is not seen in European countries between the actual facts of the economy and perceptions of the economy. Now, in the past month, we have seen some uptick in consumer confidence, and we've seen that inflation expectations are down. So that's great. But this is very, very new because until quite recently, and and I think it persists, Americans have had a much more sour interpretation of the economy than is reality. Now, admittedly, grocery prices are high and people hate that, and they haven't seen inflation for 40 years, so they're very pissed off about it. But here's something from the Financial Times that kind of sets the table. It gives the incorrect and the correct answer. Okay, so here is the question. Comparing today to one year ago, which has increased faster on average across the U.S., prices or wages? Okay, so 90% said that prices have risen faster. The correct answer was wages. Do you think the rate of inflation has gone up, down, or stayed about the same since this time last year? 73% said they thought it had increased. Correct answer No, down. In terms of net worth, do you think the median American household is wealthier today than before the pandemic? 13% said wealthier today, which was the correct answer. 67% said that they were wealthier pre-pandemic, and so on and so forth. So, Damon Linker, to what do you attribute disconnect between reality and perception? Some of my good friends and colleagues out there in the pundit world have really been mulling this over. I think in a good faith way, people like Matt Iglesias and my friend Noah Millman, uh, who has a Substack, and many others uh, sorting this out, economists trying to make sense of it. Noah Smith's written about it a lot. I mean, I think on one level, it clearly is true. As you said, there hasn't been inflation in like a couple of generations. So there are a lot of people out there who have no experience of rising prices. They also have no experience of interest rates, at least in the last 20 years, being uh, as high as they are. So that's a big shock for people. And already housing prices are really very high and tolerably high in a lot of places in this country. And to have the rate of mortgages to be going up through the roof in this way on top of the high prices. Well, but only for people who are buying homes. I mean, everybody who's a homeowner benefits, right? That's true. But there's always this pressure of of young people who are coming out into the marketplace for the first time and trying to decide, am I going to have to keep renting? What are the prospects of getting a first home? And and you know, I think for m- millions of Americans, they look out there and they, they say, well, like, I, I thought it was a little out of reach, but now it's like way out of reach. There's no way I could afford something like that anytime soon. And that, I think, can make people pretty gloomy about their future prospects. And it is true, uh, wages are rising. They have not caught up yet to, you know, all of the price hikes. So things still seem relatively a lot more expensive than they were a few years ago. Then there's an additional contribution to the bad vibes, which may simply be a lot of volatility in people's life experiences since the pandemic began. I mean, it is wonderful that we spent of what we did, at least until toward the end when Biden came in and and then there was even more of an infusion uh, that probably did drive up in inflation, at least a big chunk of it. We went too far, but we were overcompensating for the fact that we sort of underspent our way out of the financial crisis in the 2008 to 2010 period. And so we, we kind of went too far in the other direction. Fine. But it's also the case that that 
people got to enjoy huge infusions of money from the government. If you had kids for, their, for a year under the beginning of the Biden administration, you were getting extra money uh, for your children, uh, but then that went away. And so people have seen first the pandemic hits and they lose their jobs or their hours are cut drastically because the whole economy shuts down and they think, oh my God, I, I'm heading into the poorhouse. And then Uncle Sam steps up and suddenly there's an infusion of money and it's like, hey, look, we have all this money and I have nothing to spend it on because everything's closed. So suddenly my savings account is exploding with money and I feel rich. Then the economy begins to open up and you start to spend all kinds of things, uh, lots of stuff. But then inflation kicks in and then there are supply chain problems. So things are taking a long time and that pisses you off. And then uh, the money inflow goes away. And so suddenly now you have to draw down your savings just to live and then the savings is gone. That's a lot of difficulty in just wrapping your head around, okay, what am I planning? What is my income? How much do I have saved? That of kind of shock of volatility across all of these life experiences, I think, may be a, a real big factor in people just being very grumpy and also not willing to give uh, a big benefit of the doubt to how the country has been been run the last three years. Um, and again, I'm just making this up. This is what pundits do. I'm sort of like, you know, sucking my thumb and staring at the sky and coming up with explanations. Because uh, if it's not that, then I don't really know what it is. It's just that we're kind of collectively a little depressed. I mean, why is that? I mean, it could be anything. So, but I do think there are elements of an explanation and some of the stuff I just threw at the wall to make some sense of it, but others can differ if they wish. Okay. Well, um, Linda, that all sounds sounds reasonable, but uh, but I am just struck by the disconnect between some of these perceptions and, you know, so one poll back, this was back in August, but um, 71% of Americans, 71% said that the economy was either poor or not so good, okay? But 60% said that their financial situation is good or excellent. Right, right. But, you know, but this isn't just, pertaining to the economy. I, I know for the many years that I spent uh, in education that uh, there used to be polls about, you know, whether public schools were failing to teach kids what they needed to know. And sort of almost uniformly, people said, oh, yeah, the schools have gone to hell. You know, nobody's learning anything. Well, what do you think about your public school? Oh, and suddenly, oh, well, the kid, you know, the kid, school my kids go to, of course, it's great. Uh, it's the same thing about Congress. Don't like Congress at all, but you like your own congressperson. So, you know, there is a little bit of this sort of curmudgeon factor, I think. And I, I you know, having uh, disagreed vehemently with Damon earlier in the show, I want to beg to agree with him on, on his points. <sighs> okay, Bill Galston. Well, I'm not sure with whom I'm begging to differ, except you know, this general proposition that the American people are unreasonable and out of touch with their own economic circumstances. I just don't think that's true. Let me offer some facts drawn from official government statistics. For 25 consecutive months, 25 months, from March of 2021 until April of 2023, Prices rose faster than wages. And it is true that those two lines crossed in the spring of this year, but after more than two years of the opposite experience, it's going to take time for the American people to accept, assuming that this trend continues, that they are past a very rough patch. We also know that Household incomes have declined for two consecutive years. We don't have the 2023 numbers yet and won't. I very much hope that they will show an uptick. But there again, there are the first two years of the Biden administration were not good news on the household income front. You have the further point that when economists use the word inflation, they mean the rate of price increases. 
But more than half of the American people, we know this from polls, when they hear the word inflation, think to themselves the absolute level of prices. The prices. They think the price. Right. They think the price. And it's sort of a globalization of the campaign slogan, the rent is too damned high. Right. And so now speaking of rent, it's not the, the cost of housing doesn't simply reflect the cost of buying a home. It also reflects rentals which are have been rising more than twice as fast as the overall as the overall level of price increases to the point where if you're a low income or a working class householder in many cases you're being asked to spend up to half of your disposable income on rent and it is now starting to be the case that people who are employed full-time in good, steady jobs, including government jobs, are joining the ranks of the homeless because the rent is too damned high. We are paying the price for a failed housing market post the Great Recession, and it's but it's now because of the blockage in the market for single-family homes. A lot of demand is now shifting to the rental side, and the supply is inadequate to fulfill that demand, which is why rents are rising so quickly. So, you know, I really reject the proposition, the, let's call it the Krugman proposition, that the economists are right and the American people are just out to lunch. Not only is that the kind of insulting condescension that has fueled the populist revolt, but if you look, if you put it up against the facts and see the way average Americans experience the economy as opposed to the way the economists do, uh, I'm on the people's side on this one. Well, I, I have here a note saying that the median household wealth after inflation increased by 37% between 2019 and 2022, which is the largest in the history of the Federal Reserve Survey. So not so sure that the um, median household wealth is suffering, but you said income, Mona. Not Mona, oh, you not said Mona. income. Oh, okay, okay. Well, so wealth is another matter, and that yes, okay. And by the way, if you're not a homeowner, you haven't experienced that sort of game. That yeah, no, no, no. That's a, that's a perfectly fair point. But there is other data which does suggest that we may be turning a corner on some of these perceptions, Eric Edelman. We're seeing that people, for example, their, their inflation expectations are now drifting down, which is really good um, because inflation expectations all by themselves can cause serious problems for an economy. And people are planning whatever they, you know, however much they complain about high high prices, which I share. I feel it every time I go to the supermarket. Um, they have plans to go on vacation. They have plans to buy new cars. They have plans to, you know, make big purchases in the next six months. So that suggests that some of this may be easing. We may be turning a corner at least. I hope so, because there is a disjunction. I mean, I take Bill's point totally. I think a lot of this kind of vibe was set in the first six months of the Biden administration, when despite the increased spending in the early months of the Biden administration, uh, which you know appear to have been somewhat inflationary, despite the fact that Larry Summers warned the administration about inflation, people said there's not an inflation problem in the Biden administration. No inflation problem, not a problem. Crisis on the border, not a crisis, not a problem. Uh, crime going up, not, I mean, crime is now going down. But, uh, you know, when the administration began, it was going up and people said, no, it's not a problem. And I think it all crested in August with the Afghan withdrawal, which was completely bollocked by the administration, whatever your point of view about whether it was wise to get out or not get out. I think everybody agrees that the actual withdrawal was a complete shambles. And, you know, Biden ran as a safe pair of hands, competent uh, president to replace a, you know, erratic, incompetent president. And I think that fatally shattered his and the administration's uh, reputation for competence. And so all these other problems now are being laid at his doorstep, whether fairly or unfairly. I, I certainly hope that all the things you cited, Mona, help, you know, come around. And if we have a soft landing in 24, uh, that, you know, this turns out to be like uh, 1984 and the incumbent benefits, you know, from 
uh, from morning in America, but I'm quite worried that we may not get there. Especially when the stakes are so high. All right, let's speak for a minute about HelloFresh. Well, at this time of year, everyone wants to cut down on errands and spending time in checkout lines, especially when the prices are so high at your supermarket. (laughs) But you can skip that extra grocery store trip and instead get fresh ingredients and delicious recipes delivered with HelloFresh. Just pick your meals, decide on a delivery date, and sit back and have it delivered. Also, if you're hosting this holiday, HelloFresh Market has just what you need to please a crowd without the hassle, from photo-worthy charcuterie boards to mouth-watering desserts. Their ingredients are all the best quality. We partook of the HelloFresh delivery, and I must say that I was a little skeptical because I like to cook, and I cook every night, and I thought, no, they don't really have anything to teach me. I was a little skeptical, but honestly... It was very good. The ingredients, as I say, are all good quality, fresh, and they provide very easy directions. Your recipes come prepackaged, and then you get step-by-step instructions with photographs of how to do it. So if you're not an experienced cook, don't worry about that. They show you exactly what to do. They give you a menu with the calorie counts and how long it will take to do everything. They've really done all the thinking for you. Plus, the recipes are quite delicious, I have to say. I had the Spices Nice Turkey Couscous Bowl and the All Kale Chicken Caesar. They were very creative recipes and they were very healthy. Plus, HelloFresh accommodates food allergies and sensitivities, and yet they still come up with delicious menus. So if you are a typical American who eats a lot of fast food, who eats a lot of processed food, who says, oh, I'm too tired to cook tonight, I'm going to just order something from a local restaurant, you would be far better off ordering from HelloFresh because you will be eating real food, not processed food. You'll have these delicious recipes prepared for you with high quality ingredients and couldn't be easier. Did I say they give calorie counts? They also give calorie counts. So go to HelloFresh.com slash beg to differ free and use code beg to differ free for free breakfast for life. That's right. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at hellofresh.com slash beg to differ free with the code beg to differ free. And we thank them for sponsoring beg to differ. All right, we now come to our highlight or low light of the week. And we'll start with Bill Galston. Listeners, you can put this one in any category you prefer. Rudy Giuliani has just declared bankruptcy. Is that it, Bill? That's it. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Eric Edelman. I struggled very hard, very hard, to try and come up with a highlight. And I have failed. (laughs) Sorry to report. I did come up, however, with two lowlights to make up for the fact that I couldn't come up with one highlight. One lowlight is that in addition to everything else we know about the Mar-a-Lago documents case, it uh, was revealed this week that there is a missing binder of very sensitive intelligence about Russian interference in the 2016 election, uh, which was uh, requested by President Trump uh, in the hope that he could uh, declassify it in the last minutes of his presidency to debunk what he likes to call the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax. Uh, it includes apparently very sensitive sources and methods, and it has gone missing. Nobody knows exactly where it is, which I found enormously troubling. The other low light, of course, is President Trump uh, has used extraordinarily, uh, I would say, vile language um, describing immigrants as poisoning the blood of the country, uh, describing his political opponents as vermin, you know, very much echoing the language of fascist dictators uh, in the earlier uh, part of the 20th century, both Mussolini and Hitler. He did reveal to us, however, that 
He has not read Mein Kampf, which in my view is a non-denial denial because we know from his divorce proceedings from Ivana Trump that he used to keep a book of uh, Hitler's speeches at his bedside table. Um, well, I tweeted that this was the one statement of Donald Trump's when he said, I haven't read Mein Kampf, that I said I was inclined to believe since Mein Kampf is, after all, a book. Damon Linker. Uh, this week, uh, Bill has, uh, you know, fulfilled karma by stepping on mine. Um, but thankfully, uh, gratefully, uh, Bill had very little to say. He merely announced the Giuliani bankruptcy declaration. Uh, so I will elaborate a little bit more on top of it since that was my choice. And I also worked for the man. It's true for about, uh, six months in 2000, uh, into 2001, I was a speaker writer for Rudy Giuliani, uh, where my boss was uh, Michael Anton. And one of my colleagues, a senior colleague, was uh, John Avalon, who listeners might know from CNN. Uh, and uh, I have to say, like, seeing Giuliani's decline, you know, hits me harder than most other people's in the Trump era, not just because I worked for him, but because I actually at the time did consider him to be an excellent mayor, you know, Back in the old days, the first generation of the neocons, uh, before neoconservatism came to be uh, associated with and denigrated as a, a kind of foreign policy theory, uh, it was it was largely about domestic policy, and a good part of it was urban policy. And the Giuliani administration in New York in the 1990s and its approach to fighting crime and other things was a kind of expression of that outlook. And it's one that at the time I very much endorsed and was proud to be working for, for again, a brief period. And to see him descend in the subsequent years, and especially since uh, Trump's rise, to turn himself into a kind of shameless lackey, humiliating himself before the world, uh, to, to try to make Trump look better and kind of fulfilling Trump's self-aggrandizing conspiratorial uh, approaches to everything. And then, of course, culminating in uh, the 2020 election and its aftermath was very dis disheartening. And then where it has ended up? Well, with a $148 million damage, a pun both punitive and whatever the other kind of thing is, <laughs> they, they threw the book at him. Uh, the, the jury uh, you know, is making him supposedly pay almost $150 million to these two election workers in Georgia. And, you know, I think that's almost ridiculously large. Uh, it probably would have gotten knocked down on appeal, uh, but it has driven him to declare bankruptcy, claiming that his assets are worth between zero and $10 million and his debts run uh, in excess of $100 million. And I mean, talk about a decline from America's mayor and a guy who, uh, you know, kind of was on the front lines at the first first sort of civic hero of the of the 9/11 uh, era to to this ignominious end is is really something and it it still after all these years leaves me kind of slack-jawed and and shaking my head in in stupefaction <laughs> so that's my low light of the week yeah and you know it is an interesting also that all of these Trump enablers, not all, but many of the Trump enablers and the shock troops are paying a price. Uh, Giuliani has lost his law license and now has had to declare bankruptcy. A number of the Proud Boys are now serving long sentences. And yet Trump himself is the front runner for the presidency. Linda Chavez. Well, you know, well, well the, the, I'll just add the, the mob boss is always the last one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, keeping up this vein of lowlights, um, lowlights that apparently give some of us satisfaction. I've got a low light that uh, maybe, Mona, instead of having highlights and lowlights of the week, you ought to add a third category, and that is schadenfreude of the week, because I've got a low light that made me 
uh, really happy. And that was uh, related to what happened in Florida when the chairman of the Republican Party, a man named Christian Ziegler, was relieved of his duties and his salary was reduced to $1.00. because he has been accused of a crime, actually a crime of rape, uh, of a woman who apparently he and his wife, uh, Bridget Ziegler, who started, uh, one of the people started Moms for Liberty, had engaged in a three-way sexual encounter, a consensual one, uh, previously, more than one, <laughs> previously. I don't know. This just brought a smile to my face. I mean, talk about hypocrisy. It's just, you know, it's so disgusting. And, you know, for once, uh, a party, uh, the party actually did something right. They thought, gee, we really can't stand uh, this stanchion. We better remove this guy uh, as chair and at least reduce his salary to a dollar from he was making in the six figures. Um, So that's my highlight of the week. And I think it goes along with the Giuliani and uh, others that have been mentioned already. Oh, gosh. You know, um, this also reminds me of the um, Jerry Falwell Jr. and the pool boy story. (laughs) Again, these people who present themselves as moral avatars uh, who are so deeply corrupt, it is like something out of um, a tabloid or a novel or something. Anyway. She should have called her... her organization, Moms for License. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Or and maybe we can have uh, Housewives of the Christian Right, a new <laughs> uh, popular TV show. Well, I don't know what to call this. I guess I'll call it a low light, um, but it's sort of a highlight because I want to praise Catherine Rampell for a column. But the topic of her column is the low light, which is that a bunch of the right wing influencers out there went completely bat guano over um, a video that uh, the Biden family put out for Christmas. This was uh, a tap dancing show filmed at the White House that is a take on the Nutcracker. It's to the Nutcracker music and it's a bunch of people tap dancing and they're wearing Nutcracker outfits and things. And Laura Ingram said that it was woke nonsense and part of the Biden freakorama And she said it was designed to offend the public and appeal to flag burners and the America haters. The Federalists said the video was an abomination and an attempt by the Bidens to slip radical Marxism into the country's Christmas celebrations. Now, this is such absurd, over-the-top language, and it so insults the intelligence of the viewers. And I'm sorry to say that it seems to work, but I watched the video It is about as G-rated as you can possibly imagine. Tap dancing is not woke. (laughs) There's nothing woke. And the only way you can interpret this as woke is if every time you see an African-American person, you say, this is woke. I mean, some of the dancers were African-Americans. I cannot figure out what the hell they're talking about. So Donald Trump claims that immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country, which is a despicable and Hitlerian thing to say. But these people, the Laura Ingrams, the Federalists, and the other right-wing influencers are truly poisoning the minds of the right. And that's my Christmas message. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. But with that, I want to thank Eric Edelman for joining us. And of course, the regular panel and our producer, Jim Swift, our sound engineer, Jonathan Siri, and of course, our wonderful listeners. I hope everyone has a wonderful holiday. I will be off next week, but beg to differ, we'll be back next week as every week. <laughs> 